I used to think of my body as an instrument of pleasure, or a means of transportation, or an implement for the accomplishment of my will. Now, the flesh arranges itself differently. I'm a cloud congealed around a central object, the shape of a pear, which is hard and more real than I am, and glows red within its translucent wrapping. Welcome back to Literary Guys. We're talking about The Handmaid's Tale. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen. Gordon, blessed be the fruit. May the Lord open. So uh, we're, we're day three talking about The Handmaid's Tale now. And I just listened to the last episode we re, uh, released. And it's pretty heavy stuff. And I, I wonder if uh, we're taking it seriously enough. Well, here's kind of my take, which maybe is a little different than that. Like, mm. I was actually surprised by how little of the book we actually got to in the first two episodes. Like, I feel like we are pacing this because the characters are introduced in sort of an awkward, nonlinear yeah. way. We learn about this world. As I think we talked about before, the world building here is so fantastic mm-hmm. that it's not shoved in your face. This is not your typical sci-fi slash fantasy novel. The world building is revealed in a very nice way, which is just sort of in the context of what happens. And for that reason, in many ways, it doesn't even feel like a sci-fi novel. It doesn't have the trappings of it. And so I feel like we are giving it the attention, but frankly, I don't think with 12 or 15 episodes, we could really get to all of the nuance that's here, which is really a testament to the book. Mm-hmm. Not the testaments of the book, which is the sequel <laughs> to this, but that's a whole nother thing. And well played. There we go. Yeah, Margaret Atwood is just an absolute genius, and we love her here at Literary Guys, and hopefully we'll, we'll read more of her work down the road. Let me ask you there, for readers who did read this and want to explore more oh, sure. of her catalog, where would you point them? You know, I would point them directly to The Blind Assassin. For me, that might be her best work, just in terms of quality of writing. If you really liked the lyricism of The Handmaid's Tale, I think The Blind Assassin's probably the way to go. Good tip. Okay, so in today's episode, I thought we would dig into perhaps the most central male character there is. And we're talking about Fred, commander to some. The commander, who recently got a NFL football team franchise named after him. This is true. Although very awkward. Is this presaging a Gilliland period of U.S. history? (laughs) I, I just love that the, the Washington football team was, was so wrought by the problematic history of their previous nickname that they tried everything they could to just kind of make it as bland and innocuous as possible by naming it after the villains of The Handmaid's Tale. I feel like this is why we should encourage people to read more. Amen. Amen. But yeah, Commander Fred, I I think if you're just tuning in for some reason for this episode and you haven't heard our other two episodes, we're just focusing on the men of The Handmaid's Tale because so much has been said and written about all the other characters and aspects of The Handmaid's Tale. And as a podcast about masculinity, we really wanted to tackle what the F is going on with these guys in this novel. Mm -hmm. And Commander Fred is in some ways, I think, the most tortured character here. Here's a man who is benefiting from all that this patriarchy provides, supposedly, but actually seems to me the most conflicted and miserable. See, I look at him as a failed market analyst who is in a loveless marriage Mm -hmm. and seems to have some sort of uh, Scrabble fixation. He does enjoy his Scrabble. Yeah, he's somebody who actively fought for the subjugation of women 
actively fought to prevent women from reading, actively fought to create a new society where a woman's place was solely in the home. And yet he's not attracted to that type of woman. He longs for an intelligent woman who he can have conversations with. He's fixated on the fact that first Offred might even just be letting him win Scrabble and, and might actually know more words than he does. Mm-hmm. It's such a fascinating dichotomy where you see this man who I wonder how much he actually wants the society he's living in at all. I don't think he does. Yeah. But I think he's in many ways afraid to admit it. Like if we look at the way in which he engages with Offred and June in the miniseries. Yes, June Osborne. She's even given a last name in the series. Interesting. The way in which Commander Fred engages with her is just really interesting because he starts off with Scrabble, a game, and then he senses that she is very knowledgeable. The Mm -hmm. words she uses are not simple words. And she is then given women's magazines from the time past, you know, just tripe literature. But that increases over time. Fred seems to be afraid to give her something. He's getting some titillation out of giving what essentially would be illicit pornography, even though it's quite the opposite. It's probably about fashion trends and hats. But it's the titillation that comes from that and him realizing that what she's really thirsting after is real literature. Mm. And let's face it, it's self-serving. This is a book. It's being read by people who, oh, wow, love books and are really going to respond to that as a message. But it doesn't undermine the fact that there's a certain truth, that people are seeking deep thought, which is clearly missing from this pseudo-religious society. Right, and there's something, you know, sapiosexual about it, where in a male-dominated society, we are even taught this myth that men are just in it for the brute physicality of sex. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a instinctual drive that men have to just sow their seed. But I haven't met a lot of guys who are like that. I, I've met a lot of guys who are confused about what they actually want. But I think at the end of the day, you know, most men that I've had real honest, open conversations with want a partner who entices them, who intrigues them, who challenges them. And that then elevates the physical side of the relationship. And you see that with the commander, you know, he's got this pliant woman whose only job essentially is once a month on ceremony day to spread her legs for him. Stereotypically, that might be what we're told as a society men want, but I don't know many men who do actually want that. And I think the commander is a really great illustration of that. I think you make a really interesting point here that when it comes to anything beyond what I think could be deemed as cheap sacks, that that's absolutely true. (laughs) And we see the eroticism of the commander after Offred plays the game of Scrabble that he's attracted to her in a way that he wasn't physically in the act of the ceremony that just wanting a kiss something much less than you know essentially the rape for lack of a better word I don't really know what we're calling it and what he really wanted was that kiss and that this eventually grows over time to the environment 
of Jezebel's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we get to that in, in a moment here, but I think he is craving that intellectualism. Not to say that there isn't a time and a place, though, for that you know pure physicality of the relationship, but it's not what's driving someone day to day. Yeah, I think men and women in our society, probably both, at least the majority of them, would say that there's a time and place for just something that's just physical, that doesn't have attachments, that doesn't have you know some greater depth to it. But I think when you're sharing a living situation with somebody, unless you are completely devoid of anything human, which there are plenty of people who are, I I don't know how you can live in this world that Gilead's created where your actual wife is cold and doesn't, I don't think, do do they actually have sex with their wives or is that kind of forbidden? I don't know how that works. I kind of assume that they could. The commander seems to be the authoritative head of household, so I've got to believe that this is a society where that would be allowed. Especially because I cannot imagine in a awkward reading of the Bible that seems to be mm-hmm. inspiring what's going on here, that in the Old Testament there w- was plenty of men who were married to multiple women or right. were having sex with multiple women. And so I actually don't think that that would be problematic in that view. But, I mean, let's face it, there's plenty about Gilead society which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I think the really intriguing part is it's not meant to make sense. Margaret Atwood is very well aware of the hypocrisy that is going on in the society. And I think we really get to see that through the lens of these male characters, as we've touched on in the last two episodes, none of whom seem happy. Let me ask you as a writer, uh, since we're going down that path, like I know everyone has their own method, and I'm sure Margaret Atwood has hers as well. But how do you as a writer approach having that kind of depth to writing? to really get at something like the hypocrisy of a character or the the world that's there. I mean, obviously there's the base level storytelling, the plot, the character development, but to really foster that kind of attitude, how do you go about that from a writing process? I think the, the best advice that I've ever heard is, you know, Obviously, you've heard the adage, show, don't tell. Right. But I think the the next level of that is anything that sounds like you, that sounds like your voice, that sounds like an author interjecting themselves is going to detract from that depth. I think actual depth is achieved not through what's in the text, but from what's left out of the text. If you can paint a picture like Margaret Atwood does of this world and allows for enough gaps for the reader to kind of fill in their own ideas about what might be going on, you're actively engaging your reader's mind in a, a much more kinetic way than if you're just telling a rote science fiction story and giving them the details of different alien races and timelines and technology. And so for me, it's always about taking away, you know, write the story you want to write, but then have the strength and conviction to go back and take out most of it. Because I think readers are eager for something like what The Handmaid's Tale offers, where we can really spend our time thinking about it in between chapters, in between, as the the novel says, the the characters who exist in between the gaps of the story. And I think, you know, we'll talk about this probably next episode, but the the way that ends is a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. I thought about that ending for weeks, like obsessively, wanting to know what actually happened. And, of course, we're not meant to know what actually happens, but I think that's part of the genius of it, and that kind of creates that inner depth in each reader so that The Handmaid's Tale becomes individual to everyone who reads it. 
I also have high praise for the ending here, and I'm thinking about what you're saying about the gaps here, and it's intriguing the pacing of this novel. Yeah. Like, at the beginning, there actually aren't that many gaps. There's the gap of, like, we're being told... Alfred's story from the past and there's clearly a gap of time that occurs between when she tried to run away when she was in training with the aunts yeah but then there's a gap there's a gap there too Mm -hmm. and in the main narrative the narrative that we're led at the time to believe is the present tense that there's very few gaps in fact the storytelling is almost slow in Mm. that so we're getting this slice of life of what it is to go to the grocery store, uh, have little domestic squabbles with the other folks in the home, and to know in excruciating detail what scripture passages are read at the monthly ceremony. Like, But then we have huge gaps as well. And I don't know, much of the story actually takes place over a very short period of time. Yeah, I mean, we we are essentially told that this is not even her first posting. She's been with other commanders, mm-hmm. but we don't get any detail about them. And it's interesting too. I think if you're if you've only watched the Hulu series, if I remember correctly, that's not even a plot element of the Hulu series. It's right out of the uh, kind of handmaid's boot camp or whatever you want to call it. She goes right to Commander Fred. But it's so interesting that this narrator, Offred, chooses not to even discuss the previous commanders. And I don't know why Margaret Atwood's doing that, but I, I do think it lends some gravity to the whole situation where it's just this kind of cycle that this woman is put through time and time again. And we don't know how long she's really been in it. We don't actually get her age ever even. And we yeah. really don't know how long it's been since the before times. We can kind conjecture. Of yeah. But it's not really clearly illustrated, which I think is really fascinating. Well, I think when we talk about others in her role, that at the beginning of the book, we're given this very prim and proper view of the, is it of Glenn, who is the other handmaid who she's paired with. And you're led to believe that all of the handmaids are upholding the very strict role in which they have, whether they like it or not. But we get three glimpses into that not being the case. We have the wonderful bit where Of Glenn actually almost laughs at Offred because she thought that she herself was this very prim and proper handmaid who also had very serious reservations about the way that they were living. The second example would be the text, which is written in the closet Mm-hmm. by a previous handmaid who had been there for Commander Fred. Don't let the bastards grind you down. So amazing. I think that's one of the great beats of this novel. And then this leads up to what arguably is the most shocking beat of this novel, which is Jezebel's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've got this buildup of the commander in his own honestly quite pathetic way trying to woo and seduce the handmaid who by all rights according to society kind of owns her body he can do whatever he wants with her but the one thing he can't get is true intimacy from her he can't get someone who actually likes having sex with him Uh, so he works at it in this very clumsy awkward way including gifting her lingerie and a sexy dress Mm -hmm. and really garish almost clown like makeup that he has her put on and then he basically takes her out on a date night. And we're led to believe he probably did this with previous handmaids too. This is kind of a well-practiced game he has. 
but we get this great scene of going through checkpoints and Alfred like crouching in the back of the car to not be seen and Nick is driving so she's like what's Nick even thinking of me and they go way to the outskirts of Boston and they end up at this uh, hotel that I think she and Luke mm-hmm. maybe had had their original dalliances at Luke being the father of her child the man with whom she had an affair prior to Gilead coming into being she knows this place and kind of walks into Jezebel's as the commander's girlfriend. And what I think we both love about the concept of Jezebel's is any pretense that Gilead had of being actually Christian, being right. actually, you know, trying to do something as much as we might disagree with that approach, trying to do something of Christ, of, you know, the Old Testament. It's just out the window when you've got institutions like Jezebel's. And it just goes to show that people will use any pretense they can to maintain control, be it religion, Mm -hmm. be it fear, be it, you know, false flags, what have you. The belief is rarely ever there by those in charge. It's a sad fact about life, but I love that it's included in this. What did you think about Jezebel's just in terms of how it was kind of portrayed in the course of the novel? I would love to go hang out in Jezebel's. Seems like a fun place. It seems like a fun place. It actually evoked very much the speakeasy vibe in a way that is really hard to, you know, to write about. Because I think people write about the trappings of a speakeasy, Mm -hmm. but not about the illicit nature of Mm -hmm. it. And really, I think we have speakeasies these days that are like kind of fun, you know, knock on the phone booth door and someone will let you in and that, you know, no one's in any danger. It's the trappings of fake society. And when you think about what a speakeasy was, that it was truly a place where you could be arrested for doing what you're doing there. Like it is a different vibe. And Jezebel's, in my mind, very much evokes that. There's something very just tawdry and sleazy about it. Yeah. Like, it almost feels like a 1930s vibe meets not even a a pleasant strip club. (laughs) Just, like, there's nothing which is good about it, but I also kind of dig this vibe of, like, all these little cocktail tables and the way in which just kind of the whole place operates, I think, is really something that not only is it wonderful storytelling, in painting the picture of this place. But as you point out, the hypocrisy just runs so deep here. And it leads to actually one of the best scenes of the book. Not just that, because you think that that's just, you know, a lot in and of itself. But who is it that Offred then sees there? She sees her friend Moira, who is, uh, like yourself, Gordon, a gender traitor, Mm -hmm. uh, who we thought escaped the Handmaid's program we thought was, you know, free to Canada, but actually got caught up, I think, by Maine and tortured and then kind of shown examples of what was going on with the quote unquote unwomen in the colonies and kind of given a choice that or Jezebel's. And she just kind of acquiesced, mm-hmm. you know, at least she could be in some kind of creature comforts and kept drugged up at Jezebel's versus digging up bodies in the irradiated wastelands. It's a very tragic thing, but I, I thought it was really interesting to include that in here. You know, you, you're hinted at the hypocrisy throughout, but then just to kind of break it open and show yeah. that it, it, it's just as bad a society as maybe Gilead thought they were fighting against, and that nothing really changes from one dictatorship to another. 
And I like your analogy, too, about the speakeasy as one who has ran his own fake speakeasy before. Mm -hmm. It's not lost on me. (laughs) What does it say about us in, you know, 2022, where we we almost long for that illicitness or at least the, the flavor of it? It's very fascinating. But to harken ahead to something we're going to be talking about in Literary Guys later this year when we cover the works of Brett Easton Ellis, I've got to ask you, Jezebel's, does it have a good bathroom to do coke in? You know it does. Oh, it's got the best. I thought you were going to make a different reference, which is something we're going to talk about later on this year also, which is don't ever go to Maine. <laughs> this is true. Maine, Maine does not end well for anyone. And we will be talking about that extensively as we review some of the works of Stephen King. So we need to remember later on this season to talk about Jezebel's when we get to Brad Easton Ellis. Because I think that he would have a lot to say there. And I think there's some definite scenes in his work that have a very definite Jezebel's vibe. You know, one of the big departures that the Hulu series takes that I think Jezebel's in the novel illustrates so well and kind of proves why... I think the novel, as good as the miniseries is, the novel is even better. I think the creators of the miniseries kind of felt hamstrung with the plot of the novel and end up giving Offred, or in the case of the miniseries, June Osborne, more agency mm-hmm. um, to the fact where she, you know, spoiler, if you're only in season one of this miniseries, almost becomes a resistance leader mm-hmm. herself. In the novel, you've got this heartbreaking scene. I can't remember if it's a chapter before or after Jezebel's, where Offred basically apologizes to the reader. And says, you know, I wish I could tell you that I was more courageous. Yeah. I wish I could tell you that I was, you know, more in control of my actions, but I can't. That's not the story that this is. Heartbreaking. But to me, the most powerful scene in the novel, perhaps, is the encounter she has at Jezebel's in the hotel room with the commander, mm. where she feels in control of that sexual encounter to me. And he is craving intimacy, craving giving her satisfaction, and she fakes all of that. And I think whether or not she even realizes that as a character, it's a very powerful moment where you see this character who's been stripped of almost all agency, kind of regaining a bit of her control and kind of recognizing the sadness in this character who's kind of haunted her like a shadow in her own home for much of the novel. I think it's really fascinating that it's taken a woman as a writer Mm -hmm. in order to really highlight that aspect of the masculine experience. Right, right. I think a lot of male writers, at least historically, would probably be afraid or unable to write about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I agree. You know, it's really interesting. Some of the most in-depth and accurate portrayals we've seen of men have come from women writers. It's amazing. Patricia Highsmith, Margaret Atwood, Annie Prue. Definitely, I think, is a call for more female writers on literary guys because, man, they, they really got our number sometimes. I can't disagree. Now, something that is worrying me, though, is I think you and I ran up a pretty high bill at Jezebel's last time we were there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Is currency exchanged at Jezebel's? Um, many types of currency. Mm, mm. But I fear that we may need to have a sponsor this episode simply to settle our accounts. Well, you know what? Uh, it was just a quick exchange because I uh, had the same thought as you. And, and Jezebel's just said, hey, give us some free advertisement mm. and we'll, uh, we'll bury the bodies, so to speak. Oppressive biblical extremism cramping your sex life? Tired of waiting for ceremony night with your handmaid? Come to Jezebel's. We're open all night with the most promiscuously dressed, drugged up, and fearful unwomen in the entire Eastern District. 
We've got all the hypocrisy you desire under one roof. Enter through the back door for Sodom and Gomorrah level sins. Bring your Akana wife for date night or just come stag to Jezebel's, located on the irradiated fringe of an active combat zone. Jezebel's, where the book of Leviticus comes alive. That's some good copy. <laughs> you know, Jezebel's gets what they are, and uh, I think uh, they know how to write good copy. Say what you will about the uh, exploiters of women that do run Jezebel's. They, they write good copy. So, quick question before mm. we wrap up the episode is, you had said previously that Crystal would probably choose to go directly to Jezebel's. That, yeah, that is what she told me, and I, I think it gives me some pause. We, we think we know a woman for so many years of being at her bar, and I don't know. I, would Crystal be a quote-unquote unwoman at Jezebel's, or would she be running Jezebel's? That's what I'm thinking. Right, right, I, right, right. I think she would be there like one week, take control, and then totally revamp the bar menu in order to be, I mean, just really something nice. Yeah, I, I think Crystal would have some things to say about the Jezebel's drink menu. If I remember correctly, Offred kind of pressed into a corner with being offered her first drink in many a year, orders a uh, weak gin and tonic. Weak? You know Crystal would refuse to even pour. No, it would be gin and tonic. It would be a gin with a photo of a tonic bottle taped to the glass. Mm-hmm, if even that. I do think it is time that we settle up our bar bill here at the Stardust Lounge. Yeah, we just want to remind you guys to uh, give a uh, thumbs up, a like. Give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us at Literary Guys on social media. Reach out to us, litguys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Just want to keep this dialogue going. Let us know what you think about this incredible world of Handmaid's Tale. And if you're a guy, what type of man would you be? Would you be a member of the Resistance? Would you be one of the Angels of the Guardians? Would you be an I? We want to know. Well, until then... This has been Literary Guys Under His Eye.